Hello, welcome to the Bear Marriage Podcast. I'm Sheila Ray Gregoire from tolovehonorandvacuum.com, where we like to talk about marriage in a way that is healthy, evidence-based, and biblical. And today we have a really fun podcast that Rebecca, my daughter Rebecca and I recorded a couple of weeks ago when she was still pregnant. As of right now, at the point where this podcast goes live, she is either being induced or she had the baby last night. So yay, I'm very excited. Um, But I thought before we got to our main question, I just want to do a special shout out and thank you to our sponsor, Femilay. I've been talking about Femilay this week on the blog. Yesterday, we talked about the unbalanced way that Christians sometimes talk about oral sex as in pressuring her to perform it on him when really she often is the one who needs it for orgasm. And we talked about Femile's awesome vaginal melts in that. And I also have had some other uh, podcasts talking about their vaginal melts, their suppositories that help moisturize and help with elasticity and just make things a lot more pleasurable, especially if you're going through the postpartum phase, menopause, anything where your hormones are out of whack, or you just need some special help or some special fun. So lots of different flavors, lots of different types. I've got blueberry and chocolate here. And Femily, of course, also does incredible menstrual cups, some of which even have valves so that you can empty them while they're inside you. And they also have cloth pads and wonderful teas that help balance your hormones and all kinds of other things. So go check out Femily.com. It's a great women's wellness company that I thoroughly support and thank them for their support. And now, without much further ado, I am going to bring Rebecca onto the podcast. We have an interesting question to deal with today. Yes, a great question from Rita. We actually get this question a lot in a lot of different ways. Yes, but the bigger question we want to deal with in the entire podcast is, are are we afraid in the church that women don't actually want sex? Yeah. Is that the underlying fear, belief, yeah. belief that unless women are told they have to have sex, women will not have sex? Mm-hmm. So that's what we want to look at. And we're going to start, we're going to change up the order a little bit here just a little bit of excitement um, <laughs> we're going to ask the reader question first because it kind of ties into all of this yes so we had a question from a woman who says this i am trying to get my head around this how is giving sex when you don't want it different than making dinner when you don't want to or any other chore i know there is a difference but i need someone to point it out to me so that i can understand it fully or how is it different from listening to your child tell you about Minecraft when you don't really want to, but you do because you want to grow the relationship? In other words, what's the difference between having sex when you don't want to, which is not good, and serving others by gifting them your time, which is good? Yeah. So what's the difference between obligation and giving a gift? Yeah. And I think the first thing that I would say is sex is different than every other, in essence, chore you do around the house or any mm-hmm. other relationship building thing simply because it is so vulnerable. Yeah. Like when your child, you have to list, like have your child talk about a video game that you just could not care less about. Mm-hmm. You're not vulnerable. Yes. Um, they're not using you. Mm-hmm. And also sex was designed to be a mutual thing. Whereas, like, cooking dinner was not designed to be mutual, mm-hmm. right? Like, mm-hmm. there's there's a difference there. Yeah, and you can cook dinner for anybody. Yeah, it's you can not cook personal. dinner for, like, you know, the homeless guy down the street. Give him some a free meal. We should be doing that. Yeah, we should yeah. be doing that. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But you wouldn't, you know, have sex with him. Yes. And, yes. So, and then, like, there there is a difference here. Like, sex is fundamentally different than anything else that we do. Because it's supposed to be intimate. Because yeah. it's supposed to be something which really grows your relationship. And yet, the way that it's often talked about, it's like, if we do not make women believe that they are obligated to do this, then they won't do it. I want to keep that 
question in the back of your mind. What's the difference between obligation and giving sex because you're obligated to and just giving a gift, which is a good thing, because we're going to unpack this as we look at the different ways that obligation sex is often talked about. But I do want to talk about kind of this idea between having sex on a night when if you were just kind of going with your default, you would have done something else mm-hmm. versus having sex on a night when you actively don't want to have sex. Yes. Right? Yes. So here's the difference. So say you are in a rut where you have watched Grey's Anatomy uh, reruns eight mm-hmm. to ten nights in a row. You're on season 16. You're on, yeah, you're on season 84. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. There's, you know, like whatever, whatever you're doing, you know, you're watching some reruns of your favorite soap or mm-hmm. of your favorite, like, TV show, and you just kind of gotten into a bit of a laziness rut. Like, we're mm-hmm. just kind of in a put on the sweatpants, sit on the couch with the laptop, you're playing a dumb game on your phone while you watch Netflix in the background. Like, you mm-hmm. know, we all do it. Right? And you've done this days and days and days, and you're kind of in a rut now. And you're starting right. to feel a little bit like, man, maybe you're not eating as healthy because you're kind of getting into these bad habits. And then your spouse is like, hey, you want to do something tonight? And you're like, I just want to watch Grey's Anatomy reruns for the 10th night in a row. Mm-hmm. But you're like, that's not good for me, though. Yeah. And, like, if we have sex, it's going to be good for me. Like, yeah. you know what? Yeah, I wasn't going to. But, yeah, he wants to have sex. And, frankly, it's going to be good for me if I do. I'm going to feel better. I'll get out of this rut. Yeah, let's go have sex. Even though what you naturally want to do is sit on the couch and watch more Grey's Anatomy reruns. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. That is very different than someone who's sitting on the couch watching Netflix because she is exhausted from taking care of three kids all day. She's carrying the entire mental load Mm -hmm. her husband didn't help out with dinner again and Mm -hmm. then he comes to her at like you know 11 o'clock at night when she's just going to bed Mm -hmm. after he's played video games for three hours when she did all the laundry and put stuff away and got ready for tomorrow and is looking to get up at six o'clock in the morning Mm -hmm. and he says it's been three days can we have sex Right. Right? And then she says, well, okay, this is an obligation. Like, I have to force myself to do it. Yes. Like, those two scenarios are incredibly different. Mm -hmm. Or even a scenario where, like, there's not huge issues for why you don't want to have sex. You just had a bad day. Mm -hmm. And you're just tired. And you're like, you know what? I just am not into it tonight. Mm -hmm. That's also very different than the whole, we could have sex, but my default right now is to be lazy and just kind of do things that aren't good for me. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean... We've all been there. Yes. Right? It's kind of like the difference between sitting on the couch and having to amp yourself up to go for a run. Mm -hmm. Because you know it's going to make you feel good. You know you're going to be proud of yourself that you did it. You know it's going to be good for you when you did it. And you're going to be really happy afterwards. Yeah, you're going to be really happy afterwards. You know that you're going to get the endorphins. Mm -hmm. And then you go for the run even though you'd rather eat Cheetos. Mm -hmm. And you're like, I'm so glad I did that. Yeah. Versus having like an exercise disorder where like the shame and the guilt is making you go out and compulsively run because you feel like if you don't, you're going to be a bad person Mm -hmm. or you failed Mm -hmm. or you're going to not be good enough. Mm -hmm. And that's the difference. Mm -hmm. So I hope that makes some sense. Like we're not saying that you should only ever have sex when you are actively so horny you could like you know, burst. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like there is a level where we need to realize like, is this something where I am rejecting something that's good for me because I'm going the easy route. Right. But that's a very different question than am I shirking my responsibilities to make sure this person doesn't ever have to feel sexual frustration. Yeah. You know, because that's not good. 
Yeah. You are not obligated to. It's just that it's good for you. And sometimes our default is to ignore things that are good for us. The same way that our default is often to get McDonald's instead of making a homemade meal. Right. And, and, <laughs> and it's also the difference between spontaneous and responsive libido. Like a lot of people have more of a responsive libido. And so they don't necessarily feel that felt need for sex all the time. But it doesn't mean that if they were to jump in, they wouldn't enjoy it. Yeah. And they know they're going to enjoy it when they do jump yes, in. Yes. Yes. And, and so, you know, that's a healthier way of looking at it. Our issue is that when you look at the way that women are often talked to about sex, mm-hmm. it sounds like a lot of these authors can't distinguish those two things. Yeah, they just don't see the difference. And we want, we want to show you what that can look like mm-hmm. um, in, in several cases. So first of all, Kevin Lehman's book, Sheet Music has this passage in it and this is close to the end of the book so he's talked about how to make sex great yeah he's talked about lots and lots of things Mm -hmm. and then he says this i'm blunt with premarital couples if you're not willing to commit yourself to having sex with this person two to three times a week for the rest of your life don't get married Certainly pregnancy and sickness and a few other unforeseen problems will alter this. But in general, to get married is to commit to a regular time of sexual intimacy. And then later, this may mean that there may be times when you have sex out of mercy, obligation, or commitment and without any real desire. Mm -hmm. Yes, it may feel forced. It might feel planned and you may fight to stop yourself from just shoving your partner away and saying enough already. But the root issue is this. You're acting out of love. You're honoring your commitment. And that's a wonderful thing to do. No, it's not a wonderful thing to force yourself to have to have sex with someone when your body is wanting to shove them off of you. Yeah. That's not is, a wonderful this thing. This is actually quite damaging language. It's it terrible. might feel forced because that, that actually sounds like coercion. Or rape. Or rape. And you might want to shove your partner away, but you're honoring your commitment and that's a wonderful thing to do. We actually tested this. That yeah. We tested this thesis in our survey for the Great Sex Rescue. And we asked women, we looked at women who had sex mainly out of obligation, Mm -hmm. like because they felt like they had to. And the results were pretty grim. Mm -hmm. Especially our follow-up survey found that the emotions that women responded that they had after sex when Mm -hmm. they were doing it out of obligation were things like, I felt used, I feel degraded, I feel Mm -hmm. like... It was bad. It was not nice. It was was not the same thing as saying... You know what? I wasn't going to be, yeah, let's hop in the sack. And they're like, man, I'm so glad I did that. It's like you come out of it feeling like just dirty. Mm -hmm. This is why we need to stop talking about it this way. It should not be talked about like that. And what I find so interesting is that Kevin Lehman has spent his entire book talking about how to make sex feel good for women. And then his ending thing is sometimes it should feel forced. And also you're probably not going to want to do this. And so you have to kind of wonder what does he think women actually think about sex? I know. Because if you've spent your entire book talking about how great sex is, how you should want it all the time, but then the thing that you end with is it's probably going to feel forced. You're Mm -hmm. probably going to want to shove them off of you, but you should do it anyway. It's like, okay, so then even though you've spent all this time telling women how great it is, you actually don't think that that message is going to get internalized. And that's something that we also see in Married Sex by Gary Thomas and Deb Felita. 
I find married sex kind of an interesting experiment. Yeah. Because one of the things we said, writing The Great Sex Rescue, is that we wanted to change the conversation about sex. Mm -hmm. We just wanted to change the conversation in the evangelical world so that we talked about things differently. And in many ways, the reaction to married sex shows that we have changed that conversation because people are quite upset about it. Um, And it's been getting quite bad reviews for various reasons. We talked about some of them on some of the previous podcasts, um, how it objectified women. It was using a lot of icky language. um, Even just how they use neuroscience from a debunked uh, Right. pop psychology neuroscientist. Right. But what I want to, what I find really interesting is that Gary Thomas did read Great Sex Rescue, by the way. He read yep. it the year before it was published. Um, we asked him for an endorsement. He didn't for various reasons, um, which is fine. People yep. can choose not to. I've chosen not to endorse and, lots And of books. by the way, we sent him lovely emails telling him that it was totally fine that he couldn't endorse. Yeah. And we also sent him emails saying we'd be happy to help with the stats yep. for married sex, but they never took us up on it. But he obviously read it because throughout the book, he's talking about how bad the obligation sex message is and how mm-hmm. we shouldn't be giving it. But then this is how he ends the book so after saying how bad the obligation sex message is after saying how great sex is and how you should want it and how it should be awesome and all of that this is how he ends it and i'm gonna read i'm gonna read a couple of excerpts so i'll I'll read a bunch of what he says here much has been said indeed we've said it ourselves in this book about the unhelpfulness of obligation sex interestingly it was us that's been bringing this up but he doesn't mention us here But the reason obligation sex doesn't work isn't that there are no kernels of truth behind it. (laughs) When we choose to get married, we are declaring that we will be reasonably available for sexual activity. Obligation sex begins to break down because we're selfish and unwilling to sacrifice for each other. I don't want to make sex feel like a sacrifice for my spouse, nor do you. That sounds horrible. But God can use the sexual relationship to reveal our own selfishness, which is crucial because selfishness never restricts itself to one arena of life. And then he goes on to explain that just how when you bring a baby home from the hospital, you have to get up in the middle of the night to, to feed it, them. to nurse them, that we should have the same attitude towards uh, towards sex as that, that you do it out of both love and, and obligation. And then he says, it's not healthy for sex to always or even mostly feel like a sacrifice, but it is also not healthy for a spouse to think sex should never feel like a sacrifice. Mm-hmm. I, I do take a big issue with that. because I do too. I don't think the only time sex has ever felt like a sacrifice for me in my marriage was early in my marriage. And I've talked about this when I had vaginismus yeah. and when sex actually hurt. Well, and the thing is, the word sacrifice is what I have a problem with. Mm Because sacrifice is not the same thing as, like, we shouldn't be lazy about it. We should prioritize Sacrifice means you are giving something up without getting something in return. It means that you are, are like, literally taking a part of yourself. Like, a sacrificing... Mm means that you are losing something. Mm -hmm. That's the whole point of a sacrifice. A sacrifice isn't a sacrifice if you don't lose anything. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't ever be losing something with sex. Yes. And, and, and yet that's the way that this is talked about is that it should be this, this, this sacrifice. Um, and then he says, some wives who read this may think that means he needs to be leaving me alone. As in like, if he's sacrificing, he shouldn't be bothering her. But does it? Perhaps at times. But if God designed you to be desired by your husband, adored by your husband, celebrated by your husband, and sexually pleased by your husband, wouldn't sexual compassion motivate him to adopt an approach that allows him to accomplish this in a way that you find inviting and exciting? So the way that women sacrifice is by giving sex to men. And the way that men sacrifice is by giving sex to women. Yes. But when men want it. 
Yes. Because it's when the woman doesn't want it. Mm -hmm. Because what he's saying is there's a woman who doesn't want sex, Mm -hmm. and the way a husband can sacrifice for his wife is to make her have sex anyway and bring her to orgasm. Right. Which, by the way, if you don't want to have sex and someone brings you to orgasm against your will, that is also rape. Yes. Like, that's what we hear from... I mean, that's not what he's saying. No, I know, but this is why we have to be careful, because we heard from so many marital rape victims where that's what their husbands would do, and then they'd say things like, well, you liked it. Yeah, it's just interesting that when he's talking about sacrifice, the idea of sacrificing climax or orgasm doesn't come up. Like mm-hmm. the idea that the person who wants it more should sacrifice a bit for the person who doesn't want it, 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 that that's not an issue because he's already the main thing is that he learns how to bring an orgasm, which is important. Yeah. We, totally that's important. We agree. Let's bridge the orgasm gap. Yes. But again, the way that this is framed is that only the woman should have to sacrifice and sex should seem like a sacrifice. Yeah. Um, he's also, he's saying that it's sacrificial for husband to learn how to have sex in a way that his wife likes. But he also says the in rest, the rest of the entire book is that men feel good about this. It makes them feel great. They enjoy bringing you to climax. So it's not a sacrifice at all. Mm-hmm. Then he says, I don't always want to exercise, but I need to do it at least five times a week. I don't always want to eat vegetables, but according to my wife, I need to several times a day. Okay, and so he's comparing having sex to something that you really don't like doing, but you do it because it has benefits for you in the long term. Yeah, but it's like, but again, obligation sex does not have benefits for the woman. Mm-hmm. Other than the fact that her husband gets sex. Like, this is what I'm saying is like, take, forcing yourself to go for a run because you know that you're going to enjoy it is very different than forcing yourself to go for a run out of a warped sense of obligation or shame that comes from an exercise disorder. And what we're doing is we're inducing these weird sex disorders in couples where they're not able to have self control, they're not able to actually enjoy the good gifts because mm-hmm. everything is about whether or not you're measuring up. And that's what we find in obligation sex. We find that women who perform sex um, based out of obligation are almost double um, as likely to experience sexual pain. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. That Mm -hmm. is not a benefit. That's not the same thing as eating broccoli when you'd rather have a Cheeto. Yeah. In fact, it's actually about having Cheeto when you should have had broccoli. Because a Cheeto has bad outcomes. Mm -hmm. So does obligation sex. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, and, and, and that's what we need to get rid of. And elsewhere in a blog post, which he's now deleted because there was such backlash, backlash. against it. But right? he doesn't say that he disagrees with this point, so that's why we're reading it. Yeah, yeah, he, he, he apologized for the story in, that he used in this blog post. He didn't apologize for the main message, and he made it clear they still believed in the main message. Mm-hmm. And the main message here is that he says, obligation sex is one of the worst ways to overcome a sexual impasse, which is great. But then he says, the challenge is that the church is often plagued by binary thinking. We throw out one extreme and we fall prey to the other. And so he's looking at this as like, there's these two extremes. Like, yeah, we don't want obligation sex, but we still need a little bit of obligation. He says that it is cruel and dishonest for a man to blame his porn use on his wife's unwillingness to have sex. But it is also cruel for a spouse to say to her husband or his wife that they should be satisfied with sex once a month at most. So what what he thinks is that if mm-hmm. someone doesn't, if a wife doesn't hear the obligation sex message, she'll just cut off sex. Yeah. And so this to us is the crux of the problem. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the evangelical church is seeing it as either we force women to have sex or they will stop having sex. Yeah. And this is showing an unconscious belief system that I don't think they actually ever wanted to state, which they do not believe that women actually like sex. And this is the key thing that we want you to hear. Okay. Yes. This is why we're talking about this is that we think that deep inside the evangelical mind, 
there's this belief that women truly don't want sex. And no matter how many sex positive books we write, no matter how much we write about how great sex can be for women and how you can reach orgasm, deep inside, if given a choice, women would never have sex. Yep. And so they write these whole books about how to help her reach orgasm. Because Gary says over and over in this book, too, that like the best way to have a great sex life is to make sure it's mutually enjoyable. That's mm-hmm. great. We mm-hmm. agree with that entirely. Mm-hmm. That's what our research found. That's what lots of research has found. Yeah. Right? But then he still always says, but we need a little bit of obligation in case they can't. Yeah. Like, he's like, so the best ways to make it mutually enjoyable. Our backup is, well, then we'll just coerce her anyway. Yeah. And you know what? I, like, in, in the new Good Girls Guide to Great Sex that's coming in February, in my last chapter to women... You know, I do talk about how to prioritize sex more yeah. because th- I know that a lot of women don't prioritize sex when we have more of a responsive desire, even if it feels good. And But the point that I'm making in that chapter is this comes after fixing the mental load issue, the communication yes. issue, <laughs> the orgasm issue, like all of, once all of those things are dealt with, yes. you know, then let's learn how to prioritize this because it's good for you too. Like yeah. not, not, not because... You need to sacrifice for your husband, mm-hmm. not because otherwise we're going to end up with like you know women are just never going to want to have sex mm-hmm. it's because this is something that is a gift for you so don't miss out on the gift yeah and by the way there is like positives it's not like the obligation sex message where when you're simply doing because you feel you have to we have higher rates of sexual pain lower rates of arousal lower rates of yeah. orgasm all these different things like we found scientifically that the obligation sex message is a toxic one yeah. and yet people are really holding on to it regardless yeah. and we did not find that prioritizing sex even when you have a response to the libido has damaging um no, damaging results not at all because in our follow-up survey and i want to explain this because i think this is the crux of it yeah okay there were two groups of women who had pretty comparable outcomes in terms of the emotional language they used to describe sex and their experience during sex. Mm-hmm. You had women who were turned on before they started having sex. Your spontaneous desire women. Yes. They're, They're just raring to, go. raring to go. They're like, honey, come take me, baby. Yeah, exactly. Okay. But then you had your responsive desire wives who were not aroused when they started sex, but they were extremely confident that they would get there. Yeah. So they're entering sex, like what I was saying about just watching Grey's Anatomy and your husband's like, hey, you want to go have some fun? They're like, sure, let's go have some fun. Yeah. And I know it's going to be fun. The ones who had the bad results were those who were not aroused ahead of time and did not have certainty they were going to get there. Yeah. That's obligation sex. Yeah, and, if, and, and they're doing it because they feel like they should, like they yes. have to. And that's the sacrifice that Gary says because the yes. sacrifice is when you do something where you don't get anything. Yep. <laughs> like, like when you do something but you get something in return, that's not really a sacrifice. It's like, it's like in a parable where Jesus, says don't invite people over for dinner who are also going to invite you over for dinner yeah <laughs> you know because then you're repaid like instead if you're going to invite people over for dinner invite those who aren't going to return the favor like that's what a sacrifice is like if yeah. you're going to sacrifice you don't get something for it right and well i agree that our lives should have sacrificial components to them. Sex is not one of those areas because sex is supposed to be this intimate knowing. And by the way, it not being sacrificial does not mean that it's selfish. No, no, No. not at all. Like you can have very unselfish sex without it being sacrificial Mm -hmm. because 
unselfishly you're looking out for your partner yeah but they're also looking out for you and unselfishly you're thinking about what they want and need but they're also doing that for you and at the same time you feel i am being emotionally valued and validated and i am feeling loved in this if sex feels like a sacrifice it means the intimacy is missing it means the mutuality is missing and then it's no longer biblical sex Mm -hmm. and so that's what really worries me but i think the reason like one of the interesting things in our in our survey when we looked at all of these books, the obligation sex message does result in a slightly more frequent sex life. Sex life. Yeah. yeah. Like people are going to have sex slightly more. Fre- now we're not talking about like three times a week versus once a month. Like it's it's very slight. It's like one or two times a week difference. No, it's not even. Isn't I think it? it's like 0.5. Oh gosh. But you do have sex slightly more often if you believe the obligation sex message. And I think that most people writing in this sphere consider frequency the main measure of a healthy sex life. Yeah. Where what we found is that frequency is a symptom Mm -hmm. of what's going on in the rest of the marriage and the sex life. And it really shouldn't be looked at as its own thing. Yeah. I think we call it the canary in the coal mine where Mm -hmm. it's like when the frequency drops, you got to ask why not start pointing fingers with blame immediately on the woman. Yeah. And tell her she's got to have sex more, you know, and again, and I've, I've said this many times and I will repeat it when women frequently reach orgasm, when they feel emotional, emotionally connected during sex, when they have high marital satisfaction, when there's no porn use on either side, and when there's no sexual dysfunction, frequency takes care of itself in Mm -hmm. general. There's very few marriages where sex just isn't happening very often. Um, And so if sex isn't happening very often, the issue is not to lecture women on how they should force themselves to have sex, but is to ask what is going on. And by the way, (laughs) a lot of times it's not the woman who doesn't want sex, it's the man. And yet this message is frequently given to women. Okay, and in case anyone's thinking that we are just kind of overstating the whole idea that people believe that women just aren't sexual, or they don't believe that women really are sexual, mm-hmm. I want to talk about Shanti's survey. Shanti Felton. Shanti Felton, her survey for for men only, mm-hmm. where she surveyed a thousand women, and then of that, about four hundred of them were either married or previously married. So everyone else was cut from the survey. Yes, ends up being about four hundred respondents. And this is not four hundred Christian women. This is no. just general population. Yeah, this is a nationally representative survey. Okay, Mm -hmm. so she asked this, what is the frequency of how often you want to pursue having sex compared to your husband? I want it. And then she could choose, choose either more often, less often, or exactly the same, right? Mm -hmm. Pretty normal libido question. Yeah. She found that only 45% of women reported wanting sex less often than their spouse. Yeah. So that means that the majority of her respondents had an equal or higher libido than their husband's. Yes. Okay. Actually, she found that 27.1% of women reported having a higher libido than their husbands. Yeah. And I just want to jump in because some of you may be familiar with our libido stats yep. from Great Sex Rescue. She found that women have higher libidos than we did. So we found that 19% of women, not mm-hmm. 27%, want sex more often than their husbands. And, and approximately 60%. And we found that, yeah, that, it, that 23% want it often. So we had 58% of men who wanted it more. Mm-hmm. She only had 45 
25%. What uh, other studies have found when you look at it is that in the secular world, women tend to have higher libidos than in the Christian world. And so it's very likely that both of our surveys are correct. We were just yes. surveying different populations. Exactly. Um, and actually, that's a really interesting finding in and of itself. Yeah, that, we have to ask why. That why do Christian women have lower libidos? We did find some of the reasons. Uh, for instance, we found that believing the every man's battle that all men struggle with lust is correlated with lower libidos and other things like that. So I think the way that that sex and libido have been talked about to women has lowered our libidos in ironically, the Christian world. Ironically, many of the messages that we found lower women's libidos are found in Shanti's own book. So yes. Shanti found this and then yeah. she fixed it, I guess, if mm-hmm. she really... Because here's the thing. So she then puts in a note underneath this question. This explains why I say she fixed it and a little bit sarcastically. She says this. We were interested to see that roughly 55% of women said they wanted sex more often or exactly the same as their husbands, which means the percent who want it less is in the minority. We're like, yes, we were interested to see that as well. Yes. However, we did not have the ability to test whether the husbands of the women answering exactly the same were in agreement with that assessment. Therefore, we decided to deal in the book primarily with the women answering less often, since it appears that the majority of men believe their wives to be in that category. Okay, let that sink in, because this I get really mad about. So the whole point of her books... Mm-hmm. What she says is to give you the truth you're not ready to hear, is to tell you things you may not have known, to tell you the truth that surveys found. Mm-hmm. Every other question, mm-hmm. in for men only, for women only, for young women only, all of those, she goes with the majority. Yep. The only time that she discounts the majority of her respondents is when the men disagreed with them. Yep. So what she's saying is... Women say this is their experience. Men say that's not the woman's experience. Mm-hmm. And so therefore we cannot trust the women's experience because it doesn't agree with what the men say the women's experience is. Yes. So, so women- why didn't she write in this book? Why wasn't the point that, hey men, a lot of you are thinking that your wives don't like sex as much as they do. Mm-hmm. You know, women in general, like it's a sizable minority, but it is a minority who actually report wanting sex less often than their spouses do. Mm-hmm. And so if you think that there's a big discrepancy between you and your spouse, maybe you just need to talk about it. Yeah. Maybe you need to talk about how you're feeling. Maybe you'll find out that actually she's up for it a lot more than you think. Yeah. So let's think about it. So she surveys a thousand women. Mm-hmm. Only 400 answered this question who are also married or previously married. And then she discounts 55% of that yeah. 400. But the point is she writes this book that's apparently going to tell you the truth about women. Mm-hmm. And then she discounts the majority of women's experiences because it doesn't agree with her preconceived notion of what women experience. Yeah. And that's the thing is what if the preconceived notion is wrong is wrong because the preconceived notion in evangelicalism is that women don't want sex and will not have it unless they are specifically made to feel obligated or coerced. Yeah, and I really think that what's happening in a lot of these books is they're giving the caveats that they need. They're saying, yes, women also can have the higher drive. Yes, women can want sex just as much as their husbands. Mm -hmm. Yes, but then like women can have a visual nature as well. But Mm -hmm. then they continue to talk as if that's not the case Mm -hmm. and I think that what they're thinking and this is all my subjective musings okay I really think that what's happening is they're like 
Women will never understand men. There's some women out there who are maybe a little bit more sexual than their other female counterparts, but they only think that they get it. They really can't fully understand because this is just not how women are. But we're but they're not going to shut up, so we're just going to put in the disclaimers about them and then we'll just kind of talk about what people really need to hear and we get this all the time on the blog too anytime a woman says I have a visual nature some man comes in and says well a woman's 100% visual nature is like 27% of what a man experiences and it's like guys guys (laughs) guys like we can all be sexual yeah and you know one of the interesting meta-analyses that that, uh, we were talking about a couple well you guys were talking about when we were on vacation they were looking at all these different studies which measured how aroused people got from visual stimulation. Mm-hmm. And what they found is that, and this is kind of interesting, women and men got equally aroused from visual stimulation, but not from the same kind of visual stimulation, and they didn't report the same level of arousal. Yeah, like there's there's a level where, you know, our subjective ratings of arousal does matter. Yeah, and you know? it's different. So so like when they, you know, so you got your, your, your little wires going on to the penis there and your clitoris and you're measuring all these... They're, sub- they're objectively measuring arousal, which is just kind of gross. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine getting aroused in that situation, but whatever. Well, you know what? You've never been an 18-year-old college student desperately needing to pay for your tuition. There you so go. So I think that's where most of these studies come yes. from. <laughs> so they're measuring arousal, different visual stimulation, and they do find that like women and men get aroused by different kinds of visual stimulation. You know, it's not necessarily like apples and oranges. Like we're yeah. not saying that because women and men both can be visually stimulated, our sex drives are still exactly the same. No, like, not at all. Even to the fact that straight men and straight women are just attracted to different genders shows that there is a difference in the attraction experience. Yes. So, so okay. So we get, but, but the point is that visual stimulation, whatever it might be, as it is different, does tend to bring similar levels of arousal in both men and women. Mm-hmm. The difference is men report being more aroused than women do. Yeah, and other which, studies. Which makes sense because yeah. think about a little 12-year-old boy starts to feel aroused and gets an erection and is extremely aware of, (laughs) oh my gosh, this is what arousal feels like because it's associated with, I need to make sure no one else sees. Mm -hmm. Whereas girls often get aroused and don't even realize it or don't know what it feels like. And and to to further support that, there's other research that finds that women who um, experience more clitoral orgasms, which frankly, let's be, we're just going to be very explicit on this podcast too, okay? Mm-hmm. Like, what that means is generally, like, if you've masturbated a lot. Because women tend to masturbate and it results in a clitoral orgasm. Right. They actually tend to have stronger responses to visual stimuli and stronger subjective arousal responses. Mm-hmm. And so, in essence, if you've trained yourself mm-hmm. to be sexual mm-hmm. in that way, it's also like you're, you, you're more aware of the subjective experience mm-hmm. you know like and, and so I do think that there's a level where like this is socialized yes and so we need to recognize that the way that we talk about this can either make things easier or more difficult and if we're believing so strongly that women are just simply not sexual even when they say that they are that we're able to discount half of more than half of survey respondents. Mm-hmm. That's just a problem. That shows immense bias. And here's here's what I think has happened. And again, this is now, this is my subjective musings, okay? Yes. I don't is... have research to back this up. And I yes. really am interested in hearing, especially what some people who work in ministry have to say about this, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. But something we've noticed is these books go big, why? 
because pastors recommend them, Mm -hmm. because they're at all of these evangelical conferences, Mm -hmm. because these are written by these mega pastors who are like have celebrity status. Right. And they're promoted by the mega pastors of celebrity status. And all of these books portray women as less sexual than men. Yes. Women are the lower libido. Husbands are the higher libido. Women, um, women will only have sex if they force themselves to. Yeah, and so they all have this same mentality about sex. And so my question is, you know, if you're a pastor and you're recommending all these books, why were there kind of very few pastors realizing that maybe this wasn't going to work for all marriages? Mm-hmm. Because where are, in essence, the low-drive pastors? Because we know, we know that, at, you know, in, in, in 23% of marriages, the sex drive is shared. In 19%, she has the higher sex drive. Why is that not coming out at all? In yeah. these books and in the fact that these pastors are recommending these books saying, this is exactly what you need to hear. This speaks exactly to what couples are going through. Why are pastors not seeing that actually a lot of people don't relate to this at all even if we just go based on the higher drive women okay Mm -hmm. we have 20 percent approximately our survey right Mm -hmm. of christians Mm -hmm. found that approximately 20 percent of couples she has the higher drive and and again outside the church it's even higher yep but Mm -hmm. we're talking about pastors here so that means that one in five pastors should not agree with these books Mm -hmm. if we have an equal and normal kind of distribution. Yeah. And so why are we not seeing 20% of like reviews of by pastors being like, I don't really know if this is that helpful. Yeah. Like, why are we not seeing a lot of that? Why are we seeing in on average? And that's, and then remember that's, that's completely disregarding all the shared libido who also don't need this message. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so this is, this is what I'm getting at is, is there something about the way that we do ministry Is there something about Mm -hmm. the way that the pastoring job affects couples that is just incredibly emotionally unhealthy because it destroys her sex life, her sex drive? Because I think what I've seen and what we've heard from people, especially from readers who are in ministry, who have found our stuff, is that what we ask of our pastors is not healthy. Yeah, they the have levels. no time. Like the number of people who have told me, you know, my pa- my husband's day off is Monday and that's the day that we reserve to spend together. And even on Monday, he's always getting emergency texts yeah. from, from congregation members who need him. And, and, you know, after Sunday, like, like all day Sunday after the sermon, he's inundated with texts of people criticizing the sermon. Like there's so much politics in our church going on behind the scenes and he's so demoralized. Yeah. And then at the same time, these pastors and their families are being thrown into the depths of the evangelical teachings. You know, so they're hearing, like they often tend to go to Bible universities, like Christian universities that have very strict rules. Mm -hmm. They are very heavily steeped in purity culture, even though they say they're not anymore. They still are. They Mm -hmm. have rules about everything. Yeah. You know, and so this is the, this is the culture in which you had your coming of age. This is the culture in which you met your spouse. And then maybe you got married and everything was great. And then you enter this job that just is not psychologically sustainable. So what I'm wondering is if what's happening is you're getting these couples who are so passionate about serving God, who want to feed the sheep, who want to go where God has called them. And then they're Mm -hmm. thrown into a culture where all of men's emotional needs are shoved into sex. They are so much asked of them that they're in constant burnout. And then the wife 
is in this situation where she's hearing all these negative messages all the time. She's burnt out. She's constantly under criticism from everyone. Her mm-hmm. libido totally shrinks as a result because if you're in a psychologically untenable position, yeah. your libido shrinks. Yeah. We know that, especially for women. Yeah. Stress and uh, burnout and these kinds of things can make your, your sex drive just absolutely go kaput. Yeah. And so I just, I wonder if the fact that all of these big mega church pastors, all these big celebrity evangelical speakers, all of these people who have these best-selling books, the fact that all these pastors are constantly recommending these really negative books is more of an indictment on the way we do ministry. Yeah, than it is on them in particular. That's what I'm wondering. Yeah. It's like, maybe this is a sign. Maybe this is kind of like a, a big, like, waving flag saying, help. Yeah. <laughs> Something is broken. Because if we have all these people who are going in and they're dedicating their lives to serving the church, how is it that it seems like they're getting damaged along the way? And why don't we care? Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's a really important question to ask because we know that what these pastors seem to be experiencing is not representative mm-hmm. of the sex lives in their congregations. And so we need to ask, like, where did the disconnect happen? Yeah. And should that be something we care about? Because I think it, I think it should be. I think be. it should. Like, you know, there's obviously something going on <laughs> in yeah. those in ministry. And and maybe we need to ask if, if the way that we are doing church is just not healthy in what we're asking from our leaders. Yeah. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. Mm-hmm. So if you're listening to this on Spotify or iTunes or something, head over to the the comments. In the It'll, blog. Yep. Which will be linked in the show description. So yep. just uh, go over there and tell us what you think, especially if you are in ministry or your spouse is. Yeah. Would love to hear. I also think before, before we wrap up, there's one other element that I think needs to be mentioned. And that's that the more I listen to the younger generation, the more it feels like our advice is so out of touch. (laughs) Um, Because women in their 20s, like a lot of secular studies have shown that women in the 20s actually have a higher sex drive than than men there's a lot of speculation that might be due to porn use among video men games video too. game use etc that is artificially lowering men's libido uh for women whatever it might be but basically millennial and gen z women like sex and it might be that Generation X and Boomer women don't to the same extent because of the messaging that we were given. And so I think there's this thought, and because a lot of the people, remember, a lot of the men that are spreading these messages, and it is primarily men, are Boomer men mm-hmm. um, or older Gen X men. And so they may not necessarily understand what the younger generations are feeling. And I think their their perspective is if we don't give women the obligation sex message, women aren't going to have sex. Yeah, And women need to have sex. And this is really, really important important you know what that might be true for some gen x and boomer Mm -hmm. women because it could be that gen x and boomer women grew up with such negative messaging around sex that the only way they will have sex is from the obligation sex message i hope that's not true i hope that the great sex rescue sets those women free and we've heard from many women that it has well and we also know that even among the older generations of women once again if you have a healthy marriage and a healthy sex life in terms Mm -hmm. of frequency in terms of sorry not frequency in terms of um pleasure mutuality all those things we talked about they have sex yeah um and and so there is something else going on there but you know the idea that we need to keep giving the obligation sex message because otherwise these women may not have sex i'm not willing to sacrifice the younger generation for that to tell you the truth we know the obligation sex message is toxic we know that it makes vaginismus rates go up yes we know that it results in less marital satisfaction fewer orgasms we know that it just does terrible things to women and it needs to stop now Mm -hmm. 
And the only way to save the next generation is to stop giving the same toxic messages, even if you think they're necessary for the older generations. I think we in the older generations owe the younger women freedom Mm -hmm. in this area. And that means getting rid of the toxic messages. Yeah. We want to end. There's a really good Twitter thread that went out on Twitter by Rachel Darnall, Mm -hmm. who um, speaks about kind of, femininity and uh gender dynamics and stuff in Mm -hmm. the church she does a really great job of a lot of it and she she wrote this thread i just wanted to read it to you Mm -hmm. candidly i'm a pretty red-blooded woman but i get turned off like a faucet the moment some male author starts mansplaining every man's view of the female body even for research i limit my exposure because it negatively affects mine and my husband's intimacy If that happens to me, it probably happens to others. Maybe the real root of female frigidity isn't the fact that women are less sexual, but the effect of a culture that primes us to feel alienated from the male sexual experience even as we are expected to facilitate it. There is really no inherent reason for women not to enjoy and desire sex as much as men, but it's really hard to do so through the twin obstacles of one, sexual objectification, and two, sexual obligation. So, I have a suggestion for men who are wringing their hands over wives who don't want sex. Start treating women like fellow human beings instead of aliens, like yesterday. Being objectified, guilted, and othered is not sexy. It's scary, and fear does not promote intimacy. Mm-hmm. And I thought just the way that she said that, the the twin obstacles of sexual objectification and sexual obligation, mm-hmm. that's exactly it. And, you know, in our previous podcast, we talked about the objectification issue. Yeah. And now we're talking about the obligation issue. Yeah. And I just thought Rachel put that all together very succinctly. Mm-hmm. So in short, women do like sex. Mm-hmm. And if they don't, let's figure out a reason. And sometimes it's the messaging that women have been given. And in that, if that's you and you're listening... We don't blame you. That's no. okay. You grew up in a culture which said terrible things to you. Please get the great, great sex rescue and let it set you free. Mm-hmm. But also our plea is that pastors and male authors and, and female authors just yeah. won't won't keep spreading these harmful messages because, you know, women were designed to want and enjoy sex too. Mm-hmm. And let's set us free so that we can instead of assuming that there's no way women ever will. Um, Because self-fulfilling prophecies are a thing. Yes. (laughs) And I wish more people would realize that. Sex really shouldn't be an obligation. It should be something amazing that you celebrate and experience together. But what happens if you want sex to be passionate, if you want sex to be this big celebration, but there's just major issues in your marriage that are making that virtually impossible. Well, I'm going to invite my friend Amy Latta, who is a licensed counselor who specializes in sex therapy, on to discuss a reader question. Well, on the Bear Marriage Podcast today, we have my friend Amy Latta joining us, a registered therapist who works a lot with sex and relationships. She's here in Ontario with me. Um, so hello, Amy. Hi, Sheila. So I have a question for you. Here we go. So this is a couple and she's writing, they're in their second year of marriage and they used to enjoy sex regularly a few times a week, but lately it seems like it's a chore to get him to have sex with her. She says, I will hint at it, but he will quickly shut me down or change the subject. He has a history of watching porn before we were married, but denies it since we got engaged. He has ADHD and is on medication as needed, and he also works a very stressful job. We know the side effects of his medication is lower sex drive, 
and we've managed to have clear communication about when he's feeling overwhelmed at work and is needing to use his meds. My husband seems to want sex less and less, and it's very disappointing. I have put on a few pounds since we got married and tend to secretly blame myself for not being the same weight a year ago. I am frustrated to tears when I am shut down after asking for sex, and I don't know how to talk to him about this without feeling like I am the problem. I think the the last part there jumps out to me about not being able to talk about how she's like blaming herself already about lack of sex. And especially Mm -hmm. just in terms of like navigating what it means to put on a couple extra pounds as she, as you called it. I was going to say though, like, you know, in terms of sex drive, you know, we've talked about this before, Sheila is just around being able to navigate the conversation around what is happening for oneself. Like, you know, how much they want to have sex and that pressure when the other person doesn't necessarily feel like they want to have as much Mm -hmm. sex. And even around sex drive, you know, we often hold this idea that men should have the higher sex drive and women do not have the higher sex drive. I think there's a lot of shame that women feel like when, when he doesn't want sex, we assume there's something wrong with us because he's supposed to want sex. But it could just simply be that his sex drive is lower. It it might not have anything to do with you at all. And I think that's what I want a lot of women to hear who are in this situation is it doesn't necessarily mean there's anything wrong with you at all. Yeah. And I I would say like, you know, does sex actually having sex or having orgasm indicate that you are beautiful or indicate that you are all of a sudden Mm -hmm. sexy, I think is a good question uh, to ask oneself, Mm -hmm. right? Like, the, the need to affirm I am sexy because somebody wants to have sex with me all the time. Like if we just even look at that kind of like correlation between those two pieces, it brings up some interesting points for me, right? Like, you know, if, if my partner is experiencing lower sex drive and I only am feeling or thinking that I am beautiful or sexy when they want to have sex with me, what, what happens mm-hmm. when they don't? necessarily feel like they want to how can we be able just to affirm for ourselves that we are beautiful and wonderfully made and also encourage our partner to really um, enter that space of affirming us maybe in a non-sexual way if that makes sense what I'm Mm -hmm. trying to say I mean just some lifestyle things I always tell people you know if something isn't sustainable in the long term it might not be sustainable in the short term either. Like if you're in a job that is so stressful that it honestly is really affecting your marriage and you don't see that changing, then I think making steps towards changing that now is better than letting it continue for five years. Um, If it's something where it's just two years and then I'm going to get a promotion or it's going through university and then I'll be on the other side of it, that's one thing. But, you know, if you've trained to become a lawyer and you're in a law firm and you hate your job, it's not going to magically get better. (laughs) So like, if that is the issue, then I would say changing what you can is, is likely a good thing. Mm -hmm. And then the other issue that I just thought, you know, the porn, the porn issue, maybe you could speak to that because we do hear a lot that like they used porn before, but they swore that they're not using it now and they haven't used it since they were engaged. But we know from our surveys that um, I think it was 
I think it was like, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing. So I'm going to have my numbers slightly wrong, but I think it was like 27% of women thought their husbands were using porn right now. And actually close to 42% of them were that they actually are using it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, the use of porn and the shame that's associated with it to be found out is something important Mm -hmm. to, to highlight for, for, for the couple is this, mm-hmm. this dynamic and cycle that we can find when the one person is wondering and questioning if we're having less physical sex, does that mean that they're trying to hide something? And then the other person is like, maybe not watching it or maybe is, and then is already mm-hmm. feeling that shame or pending shame as we can talk about where mm-hmm. it's like, you know, my, my partner, she or he's going to be angry at me again. And then it's going to kick off another cycle of, you know, us arguing and their self-esteem is going to go down. And then, you know, they dive in deeper in terms of trying to hide their Mm -hmm. actual active participation in porn. And, you know, I always encourage couples to really engage together around conversations of porn use and like what happens for each other when, you know, porn has uh, been used on maybe one or both parties, what happens, you know, for a person who's like, okay, well, like, do you want me to look like that? Right. And then we can get into Mm -hmm. like so many pieces around, like, you know, the person feels obligated to look like a certain way in porn. And is that what he or she wants from me? And I can never be able to provide that. And, you know, so the conversation Mm -hmm. around porn is a really important conversation and not, not so much about accountability, but it's so much in terms of like what happens and also creating a sense of safety to be able to really unite the couple around how they actually want to be uh, engaging with one another. Yeah. And, and I know too, the dynamics with porn, if he's going through stress again, it's often stress that triggers porn use, even if you've quit Like if you, so many guys turn to porn to deal with stress in college Mm -hmm. or in high school, and then they may have quit. But then when stress comes again, when they're married, that was their defense mechanism for dealing with stress. And so they go back. And so have, I I think that's really important for a lot of spouses to understand, because you were saying it's not always him. Sometimes it's her that's using porn. So we Mm -hmm. don't want to use gender terms too much because it might be her, but, but understanding the why of porn use can be really helpful because it isn't, you know, often it is like this stress mechanism. This, this porn makes me feel strong, even when I'm not strong. Well, porn also typically, especially when we look at faith communities, is is the first um, ex- essentially experience or realization in terms of like being able to a gateway to be able to enter into that's safe for sexual engagement or engaging with oneself if they're masturbating mm-hmm. or whatever, right? Um, and so we can mm-hmm. we can call it a defense mechanism, or we can talk talk about it in terms of like even just personal use. Um, there's a lot of safety to use porn. Um, in some ways, right? Like, you know, you don't have to necessarily engage with a completely separate person and have an affair, but you're able to essentially um, yeah. get something satisfied by utilizing porn. Part of that as well is like being able to have something that doesn't necessarily require a conversation or require the communication aspect is something that people can find themselves utilizing more. Because I would say the right. conversation is, is hard to have to then mm-hmm. also feel like you need a need to feel more powerful Mm -hmm. as well. 
So how, if you're the spouse and you're worried that your, that your husband or your wife is using porn, depending on which one it is, um, how do you even have that conversation if they're being, if they're being trying to protect themselves and not admit it? If you're the partner and you think that your, your other partner is watching porn, um, I think a, a good question for yourself is asking yourself first, what intentions you're going to the other person with and recognizing mm-hmm. that they are in a space of utilizing it, whether it be as a coping mechanism, or we can call it defense mechanism, or even they're just u- utilizing it for something that it's giving them and that how much hurt you potentially are already feeling first by like kind of even mm-hmm. wondering if they are using it. I think that's a really good question before you even approach your partner. Um, and I've, I've coached people, you know, around being able to essentially open up a conversation where you feel that you are presenting it in the, in the safest way possible for that other person to essentially feel like they can share without having to admit and repent all in one moment, if that makes sense. Right. So Mm -hmm. we get into this pattern when we find out that our partner has used porn and we expect them to admit it and then repent of it. And then, you know, also then like, you know, feel sorry about it, that they've hurt us. And I've watched couples get into this cycle where, again, I'm going to speak just specifically between a man and a woman in that stereotypical perspective where the man will apologize for utilizing porn. And then the woman then is able then to leverage their language and the way they treat their husbands in terms of like, you keep doing this, you keep hurting me over and over again. And like, it never changes. And like, you never change and you, and and gets in a very, very strong blame space. When we Mm -hmm. repeat that pattern, we know that then in terms of like, even the man wanting to be able to admit that they've used it, we need to create spaces where that's actually decreasing so that he can actually come to a space knowing that he's not going to then be shamed and blamed in that moment and experience that very strong response, right? Because no one's going to want to admit Mm -hmm. it, knowing that that's going to also be coming to it, right? Um, And that's why I really, Mm -hmm. you know, coach people to, again, ask yourself in terms of what intentions you're coming with and are you in a space to actually be able to receive if your partner is actually going to say, yeah, I, I have been watching, right? And how can you respond in a way that actually looks at unifying your relationship and welcoming into a space of like actually having the conversation of like what that means for you um, without Mm -hmm. pushing again, that anger back onto the person. So like utilizing language of like more I statements and say like, I feel really sad that you need to watch porn right? Mm -hmm. Versus using like, you know, you always do this. You always like mess up. You always Mm. frustrate me uh, when you do this to me. Like, I feel really sad that you've done this. Like how can, and then using Mm -hmm. we statements is really good too, in terms of like being able to like, how can we be able to navigate this together and really look at like, how can we be able to unite ourselves as we like, look at like what it means for porn in our, in, in our relationship. What does it mean when you know, someone uses porn and what that, that happens. Cause, mm-hmm. cause in my, in my experience, mm-hmm. like, you know, when I've worked with people who do watch porn, you know, you'll hear them say like, you know, I don't want to use it. I don't want to have to, to look at it, but there's something that the, that they want that that's desirable about that. And, and I do think part of it is like mm-hmm. our brain wants what we know we shouldn't have, or we shouldn't want to have. Right. 
Yeah. And it, and it's, it's this, this component of like actually wanting it, but then also like, it's because there's so much shame around it. It's like, I might as well just give in mm-hmm. anyways. And then I might as well mm-hmm. just hide it anyways. And I might as well just keep it underneath the rug for longer and everything. And I really am about, you know, changing that conversation where couples are actually able to navigate it together rather than in isolation from one another. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Okay. Well, thank you. So listen, Amy, I will put links to um, your counseling service at the bottom of this uh, podcast so people can take a look at that. But thank you for helping us out on that one. And I'm sure I will have you back again to tackle another one sometime. Sounds great. Thanks so much, Sheila. Thanks, Amy. Always appreciate talking to licensed counselors. And we have more information on how you can find Amy Latta in the podcast notes that go along with this podcast. Um, As we're wrapping up, I always like to share some encouragement. And normally what I do is I read a new endorsement for The Great Sex Rescue. But this week, something really cool happened. As some of you may know, Keith and I have been working on The Good Guy's Guide to Great Sex. It's based on, largely based on our men survey that we did after The Great Sex Rescue was out. And that book is due out March 15th, along with a completely rewritten version of The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex. So I took my book that I originally published 10 years ago in 2012 in March, and it'll be out in 2022 in March, a whole new version. And I announced this on Facebook on Tuesday. And by Wednesday, the book was the number one new release in Christian marriage. So it had shot right up the Amazon charts. And I am just thrilled with that. So you can pre-order now. It helps us when you pre-order too, because the more people pre-order, the more Amazon lowers the price (laughs) and the more they order and you're guaranteed the lowest price. So you're not actually charged until the day that the book releases, but you are guaranteed the lowest price between now and then. So yeah, go pre-order it. It helps us. It makes us feel great. And you're just going to love the good guy's I, I love Keith's writing and and we really did this one together as a labor of love. And I love the new Good Girls Guide too. So I'm excited. I'll be telling you more about those in the coming months, but they are now available for pre-order. So thanks so much. I will be back here next week, hopefully with some wonderful news about my new grandbaby. And until then, have a great week. Bye-bye. <laughs>